Um, we're going to be doing some practices, a range of practices, which are aimed not at the usual stuff that goes on often at Gaia House, which is developing insight or wisdom and all the other sort of elements that go with that. We're looking really what I, what I call the underdog of Buddhism and Buddhist practice, which is the development of compassion and kindness. I say it's the underdog because in many ways it gets spoken about, but there's often lip service paid to it rather than it being seen as in itself a path to liberation. I say that because it appears on the evidence of looking at the early Buddhist texts that the Buddha envisaged many, many different ways to gaining liberation, many different ways to gaining awakening. And loving-kindness, metta, and karuna were considered to be two distinct paths to awakening. So, we have many paths, not just the development of insight, not just the development of wisdom. All too often, these are given predominance in Buddhist teaching, and particularly in meditation and practice. And so over this weekend, as I say, we'll be exploring a range of practices which are aimed at developing, awakening some degree of kindness, some degree of compassion um, towards oneself and towards others. And I've called it, as you've seen from the title, as a way of knowing the world. Because really, um, this practice should affect every dimension of your life. In fact, every way that you behave with others. Not just human others, but non-human others as well. So it should touch every dimension of your life in your behaviour. And I always think the Buddhism, anyway, should come with a government health warning that says that, you know, this practice can seriously change your life um, because it can if you let it in. Um, but you do have to let it in. You do have to open yourself up to it. Okay, let's say I'm going to talk a little bit more about the basis of this practice. First of all, first. So the first thing I really want to say is what we are doing is attempting to cultivate these virtues of kindness and compassion, not meditate on them. And I mean that because, quite specifically, the original word in the languages means cultivation. It means to grow, to bring something into being. Bhavana, which is the Pali Sanskrit word for it, literally means to grow something, uh, to bring it into being. So this is what we're attempting to do over the weekend. We're not trying to think about them as nice ideas. Uh, we're attempting to, to grow them. Um, they might just even remain seedlings over the weekend, but to keep them as seedlings um, and cultivate them, because that is what we're attempting to do. And why is this a way of knowing the world? Why is compassion and kindness a way of knowing the world? It's a way of knowing the world which is in direct opposition to knowing the world in the way that we normally know it. The way that we normally know the world is through, well, the eyes of greed, hatred and delusion, if one takes on board what the Buddha has to say. So we know the world in that way. Um, the world is a very irritating place, if you notice. It never does what you want it to do. Um, so we're always getting very uncomfortable with it, and this uncomfortableness, this state of uncomfortableness, is what the Buddha is dealing with. What is attempting to explain to us to motivate us to changing. This uncomfortableness with the world that goes under the name of dukkha, goes under the name of often suffering, but it means the totality of everything that is unsatisfactory in your life. 
anything that was within your range of experience which you find isn't conforming to the way that you want it to be. So it covers everything from the minutiae of experience up to to the big tragedies in life where things are not happening in the way that you actually want them to. It's also about our sense of dissatisfaction of not getting what we want as well. People don't give us what we want. So we get aggressive, we get angry, we get annoyed, we get frustrated, we get irritated. The world in general, as I say, just does not deliver in the way that we want it to. And so when we're in that state, we're in a state which is basically being driven by psychological components which are deeply, deeply embedded in our psyche of greed or avarice, lust, desire, whatever you want to call it. There's many, many synonyms you can use for this. Hatred, well, sometimes, but shading off into aversion and irritation, um, particularly with others. And then, of course, the fundamental condition, which is a delusive condition. Um, The condition, in a sense, which, even when we hear the teachings again and again and again, doesn't quite get it. This is the fundamentally delusive state. Now, everybody, everybody, and I've said this so many times in this room and other rooms, like everybody understands impermanence. You know, I say to you, everything is impermanent, look, all things change. You know, I come back to Guy House and I was saying over lunch, over tea time tonight, everything's changed. You know, the bed's in a different place, the table's in a different place. <laughs> you know, everything's changed again. Um, yet, it, although we understand this, although we understand it intellectually, we don't understand it emotionally. We don't somehow get it. It doesn't quite click with us. So we get upset. And I'm talking about minor things, I'm talking about big things. We, we get frustrated, we get irritated, because things are different from the way we expect them to be. So the part of this, part of this practice is to change this dimension. It's a radical overhaul, in the sense, of our fundamental ways of being in the world. When I say ways of being in the world, it's in fact ways of seeing the world, ways of responding to the world through that seeing. If you want to put it in a very simple way, if our mood is governed and driven by those three factors, what I call the unholy trinity of greed, hatred and delusion, then the world, in a sense, is seen through very particular eyes. Um, The world becomes a frustrating, violent, dangerous, rather nasty place and people become you know, simply irritants for us when seen in those ways. So what we're attempting to do is shift that and it's no easy task. Um, the Buddha never, never begins to say it's easy, it's easy to do. But we are attempting to shift that. And sometimes in attempting to shift that, we have to alter our behaviour even if the psychology isn't quite right yet. You know, we actually have to do things. I always remember one particular Tibetan teacher, um, somebody was complaining to him and said, I simply don't feel compassionate. He said, well, what's the problem? Just behave compassionately. <laughs> yeah. Because you don't always have the psychology at this moment in time. I mean, it might be that you have to kind of wait the whole lifetime to really start to develop genuine compassion, but one can behave in this way. And perhaps you begin to start to get it if you bring your behaviour in line with 
that kind of understanding. So, we are attempting to be in the world in a very, very, very different way from the way that we normally are. As I say, this is no easy task. But that is a task that's worthwhile, I think, um, is obvious. Um, because it has so many benefits, not just for ourselves, but for others. Now, when we're talking about kindness and compassion, then we also have to talk about it in regard to ourselves. Because if we are going to develop it and, in a sense, bring it into the world, manifest it, then it really has to start at home. We have to begin to have some degree of kindness and compassion to ourselves. We have to learn, in a way, to be kind to the tremendous range of foibles that we all have, and to all of the problems, those bits of yourself that you least like, often, and to accept them, uh, to befriend them, as one particular teacher I used to work with always described it, to befriend them, to let them in as friends, um, but to let them go. You don't have to hold on to them. So you are in the process of learning to befriend that which you normally see as your enemy, normally that which you push away. One, I suppose, word about the whole weekend in general, often we try, try, try too hard. And in the West, and uh, this is something that we all have a problem with in the West, we aim at perfection very quickly. We want things now, uh, and this is part of the problem that we have. Uh, again, not my expression, but one that I, I loved and have often repeated, which is uh, a Sri Lankan friend of mine, a meditation teacher, used to say to me, he said, yeah, when Westerners get meditation, they make their lives even more miserable. <laughs> because, basically, we try too hard at it. You, know, you want arahatship, you want awakening now. Um, rather than let it be seen as a way, a path of cultivation, a path of development. And this is what we're engaged in. We're engaged in this path of development. And it takes time. And it takes patience. And this is the virtues, in a sense, which uphold, basically, compassion and kindness. You know, first of all, the acceptance of who and what we are. If we can't do that with ourselves, it's very, very difficult to do it with others. If I can't accept almost the stranger within, how can I accept the stranger without? How can I begin to accept those of completely different ideologies to myself and learn, not necessarily to like their behaviour, but to have compassion and to have kindness and to have generous thoughts to those people, even when we don't like what they do? This is, again, this is the task. And it's incremental. It's not something that's going to come as a blinding flash to you. It's something that's going to be developed, as I say, incrementally, by just trying to practice it in ordinary life situations, in ordinary day situations. As with the other practices of calming and insight, they don't mean one job unless you begin to try to do it with others. Yeah, this is one of the basic conditions, particularly amplified in Mahayana Buddhism, in the, in the vehicle of Buddhism, which is all the northern schools, such as Zen and Chan and Tibetan Buddhism. 
that we live in a world, of course, and this is still there in early Buddhism, but it's just brought out more in late Buddhism. We live in a world not alone, but with others, in a deep, deep sense of interrelationship. Only we think we're alone. We think we're islands almost cut off from others. That this isn't the case, of course, is exemplified by the teachings on karma in Buddhism. What we do affects others. Being in a world, we cannot cease to act, both in thought, word and deed. Now, if our thought, word and deed is driven by those three fundamental conditions, out of which all of the unwholesome psychological states that we manifest often develop, if we do that, then we create enmity, we create dissonance, we even create violence in many cases, aggression and anger, and all those kind of psychological conditions that we see that cut us off. The karma from that, even in little thoughtless gestures, little flashes of irritation, we do not know what happens to it. This is basically the Buddha's teaching is that the teaching on karma is no simple teaching. It's just saying that there are consequences to everything that we do. And so if we behave thoughtlessly, if we behave with lacking compassion, with lacking kindness, then this has consequences that we cannot foresee often. Just my little thoughtless, irritable gesture, perhaps, to another might ramify through a whole day in the way that other person treats others and the way they will then treat others and so on and so forth. And so, obviously, the development of sensitivity which comes through a degree of attention, of being able to hold what is before us and before our minds and acting, in a sense, in in harmony with thoughts which are much more wholesome, this is what we're aiming at. Now, being kind to ourselves, we also have to accept, of course, that sometimes we're going to succeed and sometimes we're going to totally screw up. Because that's the way life is. Yet, this is not a cause for beating oneself up to use kind of psychoanalytic jargon to use these days. It's not a cause for really ripping ourselves to pieces as bad people because we're not at all there are very very few if any totally totally malicious people in this world but something does get screwed up along the way even I'm sure we've noticed it sometimes we'll go out into the world with the best of intentions in a day and say I'm going to be really nice to people today and something happens (laughs) you know and it starts to get progressively screwed up during the day. This little thing occurs, that little thing occurs, and so on again, and so on and so forth. Such that we're not acting with sensitivity. We've kind of become cut off again. Now, one of the fundamentals, and I'll say more about this tomorrow evening, but one of the fundamentals is the term compassion. And sometimes it just helps to hear a little bit about the original languages. Because right at the kind of root of this word means to turn outward for the word compassion. It means to be 
in quite simple terms, to stop being self-obsessed and see another. To actually see others. In order to develop what we are later perhaps going to call full flowering or manifestation of compassion. Then you've got to see another, and another often having problems. Even the Buddha, in the story and mythology that goes around it, didn't automatically jump in and say, yes, I'm going to go and help everybody, I'm going to teach everybody. He doesn't. He has to be requested to do this. And he turns and he sees all the suffering that's around. He sees all of the misery in the world. And out of that, out of that turning of outwards, turning outwards and looking and gazing on the world, seeing the world in a particular way, he then begins to teach. And he teaches for a long time. He teaches for 45 years. Out of that basic condition, out of compassion. In one of the Mahayana Sutras, um, there's a beautiful description of the Buddha in terms of the compassion that he exhibits. There's some about one of the pure land sutras. And um, when he talks about the Buddha walking through the world with bliss bestowing hands, an image which I find personally very powerful, because that's not normally how we walk through the world at all. Yeah. Usually leaving a wake or a trail of destruction is probably a better. Yeah, emotional, physical, whatever. Um, that's our probably our normal way. Now we don't intend to do that. And again, this is why we have to develop some degree of compassion to ourselves and kindness towards ourselves. We don't intend to do it. It happens. It happens because of this fundamental delusory condition that we have, that we possess. <coughs> In other words, we don't see the world right. So changing, transforming the mind has always been at the forefront of all of Buddhist practice. The Buddha himself um, basically stated his case very simply, that I teach only two things. Dukkha and the overcoming of Dukkha. Unsatisfactoriness and the overcoming of unsatisfactoriness. If you really want to hear about something else, go go elsewhere, basically, he's saying. Because this is what I teach. And this teaching is part of mental transformation. So we've really, really got to want to change. We've got to start to see some of the destructive behaviour that we engage in repetitively and want to relinquish it. This repetitiveness, this sangsaric condition, this condition of going round and round in circles, is why we often get that feeling of deja vu, of having made these same mistakes again and again and again. And you really want to go up to got to have wanted to let them go. To let them go is to transform the mind. And the whole teaching of Buddhism for two and a half thousand years really primarily has been about the transformation of mind. Transforming it from a mind which is dominated by greed, hatred, delusion, wrong views and all sorts of other unwholesome, unhelpful psychological conditions and to change it into a mind which is dominated, perhaps, by the absolute polar opposite. The absolute polar opposite. Dominated by generosity, kindness and compassion, and penetrating insight into the way things actually are. Now, in developing kindness and compassion, it's suggested from the early text that the Buddha is actually saying when you develop kindness and compassion, you also develop insight at the same time. You don't have to develop insight as a separate path. 
by behaving kindly towards others, you begin to see the way things are by really starting to see others at all. Now we're all different. We're all of the very, very different. And so the Buddha, I think, in accordance with this difference, you know, difference in approach, difference in what we need in terms of our practice, offers many paths. Offers many paths, which is basically where I'm starting from this evening, many ways of getting to the same goal. All I'm doing over this weekend is emphasizing one that isn't emphasized quite so heavily, because the tendency has been to want to get to insight straight away. There is a gentler way, I'm suggesting, and the gentler way is this development of kindness and compassion. Now there's another word which I think really is another word that gets lost actually in this whole business of kindness and compassion. It's actually a trinity. It's kindness, empathy and compassion. And empathy in, in Sanskrit Pali, one in Sanskrit is Anukrosha and Pali is Anukampa. And the literal etymology of this is really to be stirred by the feelings of another. Literally, the literal meaning of the word means to cry out at the crying out of another. In other words, that's that feeling of empathy that's so deep and it becomes the motivational force behind our practice. Shantideva, I'll be quoting from a little bit tomorrow. Shantideva says, it makes no sense to talk about yours or my pain. It only makes sense to talk about pain. That's all. Because in a sense, we're all in the same boat. Individually, the pain might be different, the different miseries that we suffer from, the different life experiences which have created those and our reactions to them. But essentially, there is one problem, and that's that problem of dukkha. This problem of unsatisfactoriness, this problem that goes everywhere from that simple irritability, not getting what you want, to the tragedies of life. And that's what the Buddha is attempting teaches and how to transform that teaching us how to transform that mind from a mind which grasps after irritability, which grasps after these things and creates more and more pain in the world for oneself and others, because you notice if you've got a good misery you can't keep it to yourself you've got to spread it around <laughs> um, because that's the way we are now think of the alternative think of the opposite is of course if one has this degree of kindness and compassion to oneself then perhaps you can't help but spread that around as well uh, and perhaps that's what is indicated by the Buddha going through the world with this bestowing hand you can't help but spread it around at the centre at the very centre of all is the development of a different way of being in the world. That's really what they aimed at. To transform the mind is to transform our way of being in the world. To transform it from one, which as I say, fouls up and screws up quite a lot of the time, simply not out of any malicious intent, but out of we simply don't know what we're doing a lot of the time. We simply are in a way, blind. When we see the illustrations, for example, 
that are used in Tibetan iconography for indicating the state of delusiveness it's usually indicated by a blind man leading a blind man (laughs) that's the state of delusiveness that we're in so it's not that we intentionally go out wanting to wreak havoc in the world create misery for ourselves and others we're just not very good at creating happiness for ourselves or for others now let me say something about kindness and compassion as well because often I think when we talk about those worlds A, they often seem like enormous uphill struggles <laughs> yeah, I mean, even this evening and the way I've spoken so far they probably sound like enormous ideals yeah. you have this vision of the Buddha as I say, going through that lovely image going through the world in that particular way and thinking, how the hell can I aspire to doing that but it's in the minutiae of experience that's where it really starts we can have the enormous ideal and we can be inspired by the figures in early Buddhism obviously the figure of the Buddha and the Arahad in Mahayana Buddhism by the figures of the Bodhisattvas who embody wisdom and compassion but it's really down to ordinary things in ordinary everyday life in the minutiae of that everyday life it's important and compassion um, might be simply not just thinking about oneself but you know, just glimpsing that there's somebody else outside just glimpsing just briefly the way I had it described to me once many many years ago was that compassion wasn't like this enormous laying on of this wonderful healing balm which we'd like to I'm sure all do in the way of healing people through this, this gentleness it's not always gentle that's another thing I want to mention as well but it's often just that simple simple thing of say taking a stone off a path or a stick off a path that somebody might trip up even if there's nobody else there in other words the fundamental condition for the development of compassion or kindness is thinking about another and not thinking about oneself this might be I don't know passing the thought as simple as that now normally we wouldn't qualify these as being enormous acts of compassion I don't pretend that they are but they're going in the right direction because you're beginning perhaps to sensitise oneself to others not simply to your own self-obsession all too often we're turned inward simply only looking at our own problems kind of turned around facing into ourselves obsessed with our anxieties, our neuroses, our problems and all the sort of fundamental conditions which we all have in myriads of different ways however in that one moment that one moment of seeing someone else it can take you out of that self-obsession to really see another is in a way to be empty to allow if you like a cleared space for the other to manifest and where there's all those neuroses and anxieties and so on and so forth present they are kind of blockages to our seeing the world they in a sense block our vision they obscure our vision of it so we don't get a clear glimpse of the world we don't get a clear glimpse of others I'm sure this is why John Paul Sartre said hell was other people <laughs> you know, his vision of hell by the way was six people being locked in a room forever <laughs> all of them disliking each other <laughs> You know, that's really kind of hellish condition. Now, 
to break out of that, to break out of that, we need to see others' pain. And this might even be the pain of the others who perpetrate some of the horrid things in the world. I was always very struck, actually. It wasn't doesn't come from Buddhism at all. I was always very struck um, by a remark that the philosopher Wittgenstein made. He was talking during the Second World War. Wittgenstein came from Austrian extraction, as you, some of you probably know. Um, and he was professor of philosophy at Cambridge for a while. But when they were talking about the war with a colleague of his, uh, about the war um, that was going on at the period, and this person was going on about the hellish things, obviously, that were being perpetrated by Hitler, and um, Wittgenstein said, yes, but just think of what suffering the man is going through, you know, what torture the man is going through. I think it takes quite a massive shift to see things in those ways, because obviously we see the horrors that are perpetrated. We don't often see the conditions out of which those horrors are generated. The horrors that would be despised, the terrible things would be, in a way, seen um, as what they are. Yet, we can still extend compassion towards the individual. Now that, again, is moving into the big sphere. But if we can start to do this with our own foibles, to accept ourselves, really, this business of kindness and compassion towards ourselves is learning to accept ourselves at a very early stage. If we want to move forward, as I'm sure we all do, if we want to move forward, we can only move forward from where we are. Not out of some idealised, generalised condition we would like to be in, but from actually where we are at this moment in time. With your history, with all the traumas and everything that's happened in your life. To accept it in a way to learn to love it because it's moulded who you are at this moment in time. You know, with all of the sufferings that often are present in that condition. And the only way to move forward is from that condition of acceptance, of learning in a sense to love it and to be kind towards it and all of our reactions towards it, for genuine movement to take place. So the acceptance of who and what we are, this basic condition, it becomes the launch pad for the project that we then move into. We can't do it by negating, we can't do it by repressing, and as I often say, you can't keep a good repression down anyway. It's going to come up in some form, and in some other way. Often, actually, in more destructive ways. Now, we're not talking here about clinging on to whatever happened, the traumas that we've had, but seeing them, seeing them clearly, and accepting, befriending. And I like the image of befriending because you know, if you have a friend come into your house to stay, you wouldn't want them to stay forever. <laughs> you, know, you have them come in and you let them go. It's the same with the mental thoughts that we get, the conditions, I'm sure, which we all have, or, or the, the, the thought processes that we all have, which sometimes are negative, that come up. One of the things that you find when you do more and more meditation practice is, is a bit like uncovering the unconscious. You're allowing it to arise. You're kind of taking the lid off the pot a little bit. Allowing it to arise. Now, 
and allowing it to arise, a lot of that material that's arising can sometimes be very scary. can be very scary, indeed. Because you're confronting things which often you have not wanted to confront at all. But to allow it to arise, to accept, to lean, learn even to love, to care for those conditions, those demons, those monsters which arise for us. And they all arise individually. I must say this because I'm talking in generalizations here. But what actually happens, of course, is very specific to yourself. But when they arise, you befriend them and you let them go. Very easy to say, quite difficult to do. I don't hesitate to say that. But it's only in that process of letting go, in full acceptance, that's going to allow movement to take place. No good repressing it, it will come out in some other form, as I say. No good denying it. It's happened. Whatever it is, it's happened. Whatever the anxieties, whatever the neuroses are, whatever the problems are, they are there. Only when we learn to accept in that way, in a sense, to be kindly toward those foibles, those wellsprings often of our own destructive behaviour, only when we can learn to accept in that way can we then move, change, allow transformation to happen. The opposite, if the opposite is the case, and I I think I often joke about this, but I think it's very true, um, particularly in the West, we make a, um, a virtue out of criticising the foibles of others. Yeah. I'm only, because we say these sort of things in English, particularly. I'm only saying the same thing to you as I would say to myself. <laughs> in other words, I'm only being as cruel to you as I would be to myself. <laughs> yeah, so, to learn to move away from that, in other words, the cruelty that we inflict on ourselves, um, Again, coming back to the theme of meditation as well. Don't let meditation become yet another cruelty to yourself. And I mean that in the sense of trying to be perfect at it. There is no sense of perfection. In fact, in a way, there's nothing outside of the cultivation process if one is really genuinely honest about it. As long as you're seeing, as long as you're attentive to what is going on, that is all part of the cultivation process. So even when you're doing samatha meditation and your mind's drifting all over the place, as long as you're aware that your mind is drifting all over the place and are trying and attempting to bring oneself back to something like an object, such as the breath, then that is cultivation. It's that quality of attentiveness that really is the quality of cultivation. So I'm going to try and wrap this up because I want to lay it open for some questions. Um, from yourselves, or into comments, I don't think questions, but it's not that. To try and tie some threads together here. This is a fundamental condition, as I described at the beginning. It's a fundamental condition that allows the possibility of awakening occurring. Quite different, in a way, from the traditions that often emphasize insight-type practices, such as noting and seeing, and all the kinds of things that go with that. This is much, much gentler much, much gentler path. And actually, I mean, I'd like to say one thing here. I think often metta practice and karuna practice, kindness and compassion practice, get steered away from because actually they're really difficult. <laughs> it's far easier to concentrate on one's breath, despite all the difficulties in that, 
or to try and note something than it is to actually try and generate some kindness towards yourself or towards others, and particularly if they're difficult others. So, in emphasising this, we're not emphasising an easier way, actually I'm emphasising possibly a more difficult way of doing things, but a way that can, I think, have immediate fruition in the quality of our relationships with others. Because if we can learn to hold ourselves more kindly, then we can learn to hold others more kindly. If we can learn to generate some genuine compassion towards ourselves, then the chances are we might be able to generate it towards others. And I'm not talking about massive idealisation here, but it's in gentle ways of seeing somebody's irritating little habit <laughs> and being able to accept it. To let it go, as not being important. Yeah. To see that it's driven in whatever way out of some state of mental distress often. From a Buddhist perspective, again something I often say, from a Buddhist perspective um, we all have a mental health problem. Um, basically because we're all compulsive neurotics. <laughs> you know, we're always doing the same things again and again and again and again, even though we have told ourselves these are causing us misery. <laughs> we're actually deeply, deeply attached to our misery. We're deeply attached to our self-criticism, our lacerating behaviour towards ourselves, and which is then extended to others. That's the kind of depth of the problem. Um, In a way, it's almost so deep, and I was teaching a course quite recently, it's almost so deep that these things can see this is our nature, this is the way we are, and I can't possibly change. These little habits that I have, these little manifestations of quirkiness, of way of being in the world, which is slightly irritable and aggressive, and that, that's the way I am. And I can't change. What the Buddha is suggesting, and the whole of Buddhist traditions are suggesting, is that's not the case. Change is always possible. Change has to come out of a degree of acceptance, out of a degree of understanding oneself and our motivations. When we begin to have some inkling about that, then we can have, you know, simply by analogous thinking, can see it in others as well. If we can see that most of me, I go out in the morning, perhaps with this intention to be a little better in the world, to be a little kinder and something goes wrong, well, equally, you might think that's about somebody else. That's exactly the motivation they went out in the morning. As the Dalai Lama is very fond of saying, you know, there's very, very, you know, there's everybody looks for happiness. Everybody's going towards happiness or trying to find some peace. Happiness sometimes I find a rather flattered word, but you know, everybody's trying to find some peace and contentment, some, some actual way of being in the world which is much, much more harmonious. We might want to call that happiness. However, something happens on the way. In other words, the old repetitive behaviours start to come up uh, again and again and again and again. In a way, that's rebirth for you. That's born again and again and again and again. Buddhist. (laughs) Or whatever you want to call them. So, we're going round and round the circle. Um, This is our fundamental condition. To break it, we have to break our behaviour. We have to break our patterns of 
thinking. We have to move in a different way of being. Now, what I'm saying is, is that compassion and kindness is another way of doing it, of breaking the chain of conditioning. Sometimes we try to develop the actual psychology behind it, other ways simply learning to behave in more generous ways. But you've got to want to do it. You've got to want to change. So, in being kind to ourselves, and learning to befriend our monsters and everything, we have to learn the difference between that and self-indulgence. Because there's a fine line dividing them. Learning to be kind and compassionate towards ourselves doesn't mean pampering all those conditions and allowing them free reign. It means seeing them and letting them go. That's the difference. The self-indulgence is seeing them, grasping after them and basically fostering them again. So we have to always bear that in mind. One term that's used in Mahayana Buddhism, not used actually in, in Theravada or the non-Mahayana tradition, one term that's very important is the development of something called bodhicitta. Bodhicitta is the mind that is aspiring to awakening for the benefit of all beings, for the benefit of all sentient beings. Now, there are kind of two models of this. One is what I call the holy brochure version, and the other version is actually going on the holiday. Yeah, in other words, you can think about bodhicitta, wouldn't it be nice to develop this wonderful thing which is going to be the precursor and driven by the precursor of kindness and compassion and eventually it's going to give full manifestation to those but it's a bit like having it as a nice idea and then actually doing it. Yeah, in other words, you look at your holiday brochure and think it would be nice to go there, wouldn't it? But you've got to make some effort to do it, to get on the holiday. You've got to pay some money in this time where you've got to give some time to it. You've got to want to do it. Yeah. That is actually then going on the holiday. That's then starting to really develop compassion and kindness. So the motivation has to be there. The motivation to want to change. And one um, probably final comment this evening. One fundamental thing that really in saying that's what I want to do, that I want to change in this particular way, I want to go down this particular route, often means, and something we're not very good at in the West, often means giving up something else in order to do it. Now the traditional Buddhist term, which is not very PC in our modern world, is called renunciation. Giving up. We do that all the time actually. If I want to do this, then I have to give up doing that. Mm-hmm. If I really, really want to, I don't know, go to the cinema, I can't go out and do something else. You know, you have to, in other words, you have to let go of something. Now, because we're talking about changing, transforming here, this means having to give up some of the things that we're deeply attached to, which keeps us enmeshed in the sorts of behaviour that ends up manifesting in irritability and violence and aggression and all the kind of plethora of unwholesome psychological conditions that we find ourselves in. Also giving out behaviour which fosters those. 
handle. So again, I'm not, I'm not giving you a bland message here, I hope, because it's not a bland teaching you know, that the Buddha is giving us. He's saying, you've got to want to change, and change means giving up. It means giving up that which at this moment you're attached to, which is the unwholesome. We like the unwholesome. <laughs> not forget it, we love it. <laughs> we revel in it. And we revel often in our own miseries because we know that. Yeah. We deeply attach to our miseries because we know them. They're really familiar to us. They're like old family friends. Yeah. Moving out in this way, letting go of that means to move out into an unknown region. Yeah. Into something which is unknown. And the unknown for often is something we are fearful of. And perhaps I'll talk a bit more about that tomorrow <laughs> What I want to do for, let's say, 15, 20 minutes or so is, is to see if anybody has any questions or comments or anything about this whole area of, of practice. <coughs> Don't will be forced to meditate. <laughs> I always have that as the ultimate threat. <laughs> and I will stun you into silence. <laughs> or it's just late and you've all had a long journey. Well, in a way, I think partly what the weekend is going to be about because I'm going to give you some techniques uh, for example, focusing on some really difficult aspects of your mental continuum you know, something you find really, really difficult Well, it's all very easy for me to sit here and say all you've got to do is to accept it and you know, let it go and things like that but it's really, really difficult and I was kind of indicating that when I talked about impermanence you know, something we all understand. I actually say nothing in Buddhism is difficult to understand. It's practicing it's really difficult. <laughs> you know, 
I'm sure any of it, you know, kind of it's completely rational, it's completely logical, you know, even appeals emotionally to us. But in a way, we're still hooked on what we do. We're still not quite getting it. Um, the analogy I sort of use about this is often an addictive form of model, where somebody has all the facts about the damage their addictive, you know, um, the particular addiction is, is doing to them, be it smoking or drinking or drugs or whatever. They know all the information, they know all the dangers, they know everything, yet they still keep doing it. In other words, in a way they're not emotionally convinced. Intellectually you can be convinced and not do a damn thing about it. And I think, in a way, that's a very good model for what actually happens in Buddhist teaching. And that's why, often, when you come to people like myself, you, know, you probably, I'm not saying anything new, I'm probably not even saying anything you haven't heard from other teachers. You know? But it's hearing it again and again and again and again and again and again. And perhaps, finally, sometimes we might get it. You know? and, and that really is the difficulty. And this is why the practice dimension is so important, is, is just doing it again and again and again and again and again. And this is why kind of regularity of practice is so important. You know, be it the development you know, of practices surrounding kindness and compassion, or even the insight practices. But it's that regularity of doing it and doing it, and doing it until finally perhaps you will see. Get to that point where you will we'll see. It's kind of almost an aha moment. <laughs> yeah. Now I see what they've been going on about all this time. But it, 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 it really is the hard work, the hard slog of doing it. And that's why I've been emphasising, I suppose, even the brief talk I've given this evening, emphasising you've got to really want to do it. And you're, not hard, you're half hearted about it, and you still want to keep one foot in Sangsara and play in that area. Um, with all the goodies that it has to offer, because it does, <laughs> you know, and not give up, and, and as I'll talk about it a bit more tomorrow evening, then you're always going to be stuck. Yeah. One wonderful description that um, I heard again from a Tibetan teacher, and he used to say, you know, people practice meditation like they're trying to boil a kettle except they keep taking it off the hob. <laughs> yeah. It only ever becomes lukewarm. <laughs> yeah. Because if you really, really were convinced that this is what was going to affect and transform, then you would keep stick to it. You'd want the boiling kettle. Yeah. But we don't. And that's why it actually becomes much, much more even than the difficulties involved in doing it and letting go of stuff in our ordinary life which, which is destructive and that we hold on to patterns of behaviour, patterns of, you know, um, yeah, not, they really need to say more than that, patterns of behaviour which are often deeply attached to. We kind of want to have cake and eat it. <laughs> we want it both ways, don't we? When I hold on to things are, ah, but also I'd like to do this, my kind of spiritual stuff too. <laughs> but not to involve any pain. <laughs> and it does, unfortunately, because you're dealing with something. I mean, I mean, the Buddha pulled no punches, and we're trying to find a way of using these practices in the 21st century in the Western world, 
by the Buddha was firmly entrenched in a particular tradition of a particular time. Um, but it wasn't easy, even in the ideal conditions that he was supposedly offering to his monastic communities. So it's going to be even more difficult, given that removed from our kind of lifestyle and the way that we're doing things. But I would actually now said all the negative things. I say the heartening thing is, it's definitely possible. <laughs> but you do have to keep doing it. That was again. I would answer them. Give long answers to short questions. <laughs> Any other comments or questions? <coughs> okay, anyway, so not. Let's do a little bit of practice to finish off today. And for the first meditation in the morning, I won't go through the instructions for this, but this is just the practice I'd like you to do. And I say then, we're not going to do calming practices, we're not going to do insight practices, we're going to do practices which are associated entirely with, well, most of tomorrow on kindness, and then we'll start to bring in some of the compassion practices. So we're going to be different ones for different sessions. Different practices. So this is one I'd like you to do in the first session in the morning. <coughs> it's very simple. <laughs> he says easily. <laughs> what I want you to do is kind of conjure up an image of yourself or even just an impression of yourself. Now this is derived from the metta meditation itself, but I want this one to be our focus for about 20 minutes or so, 25 minutes, of conjuring up an image of yourself holding that image and that impression, just a feeling even, of yourself. Establishing that first of all. And once you have a feeling or an image, it might even be a kind of almost photographic image, but it doesn't have to be, if you're not any good at doing that. Once you have this image or feeling of yourself, then I want you to generate some genuine feelings of kindness. And you might have to do this through vocalizations that go on in your head, and this is the traditional way of doing it, by saying to yourself, may I be well, may you give yourself a privilege, because we don't often do this, may I be well and may I be happy. May I cease to suffer. May I find peace. May I find happiness. Now, I'm kind of giving you my own formulation today. But perhaps you might have to even experiment and find formulations for yourself that work. Because then, in a sense, they have to be heartfelt. It might be that you, you do feel them from the traditional one. May I be well, may I be happy, may I gain peace and freedom from suffering. But it might be that you have to formulate your own. And to really try to generate this from the heart. Now, if it doesn't, just use these feelings, these words of the refrain directed at this image, impression, feeling of yourself trying to generate genuine feelings of kindness and gentleness moving away from our normal lacerating ways of criticising ourselves looking at ourselves, holding ourselves harshly, 
may I be well, may I be happy, may I find freedom from suffering and find peace.